0: I mean, the idea when Bitcoin first came along was that you were taking the power away from the governments and the banks.
1: Where there were
0: internal conflicts in those countries, uh, and the international community decided to
1: help. And I can remember them coming back very thin and yellow and very weary of fighting.
0: Welcome to series two of the Dyson House podcast from the Australian Institute of International Affairs Victoria. I'm your new host, Cameron Christie, taking over from Peter Bateman. This week, I was very fortunate to join John Langmore in his office at the University of Melbourne. Professor Langmore was formerly the member for Fraser in the Australian House of Representatives, as well as having worked in Papua New Guinea in the lead up to its independence and also at the United Nations. Today, he takes us through an overview of his experiences. John Langmore, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. Pleasure, Cameron. Thank you. Your career began in Papua New Guinea and in your own writings, Um, You've cited that as quite a formative experience and something that really has shaped your career um, from then on. I suppose I'm I'm wondering, what was it that, in the first
1: instance, drew you to that particular part of the world? Well, my parents uh, uh, were interested in Christian missions and they were supportive of a Christian mission there which had sent down Papua New Guinean students uh, to Australian schools and we used to have uh, a couple of them uh, to stay with us at, at, uh, over holiday time. So uh, I got to know a couple of New Guineans quite well when we were all adolescents and, and meeting people who'd, who'd worked up there, uh, mostly missionaries, but also soldiers and nurses when they came back from the war because I was, I was born... On the day war was declared and so when people were coming back i was five or six and i can remember them coming back very thin and yellow and and you know very weary of fighting Uh, so i'd had in a sense quite a strong uh indirect link with Papua New Guinea and what also played a role was that i didn't want to be a missionary myself But I became very interested in economic development in my last undergraduate year. And for an Australian who wants to work overseas at that time, uh, to go and work in Papua New Guinea was the logical thing to do. So that's what I thought I'd do.
0: And obviously independence was, uh, the independence of the nation was um, a key debate at that particular time and something which was achieved by the time that you had left. But what, how was that movement sort of manifesting itself at the time? Was there a lot of, I suppose, agitation or animosity towards um, the, the Australian involvement there, or was it quite a different... Uh...
1: When I first went there in 1963, it wasn't actually very high on anybody's agenda. Uh, uh, Barnes, Hasluck, who had been a minister, and then Barnes, a country party man who'd been minister, thought that, that independence was many decades away um, there, there wasn't really uh, an independence movement in Papua New Guinea in 1963. There were just starting to be a few people who, who uh, thought about uh, political change, but it, it, it hadn't developed into a, a movement. And in my first four years, Port Moresby, which, which was where I was located, was a, a classically colonial place with a, with a. Class system based on race, and uh, with Australians who, who who worked there, feeling they were doing good in some other place, but really not thinking cre- particularly creatively or seriously about the overall political evolution of the place. And I only st- I was very I, uh, very unhappy in my first two or three years and and only stayed because I found that I could get a scholarship to do my master's degree. Uh, it, when I got back, by the time I got back, the university had been established and and the university was a, a, a great centre for for, for for stimulating discussion and there was more uh, debate there and, and wide-ranging debate than there'd ever been before. And so that was a liberation and one could really... Think then in creative terms about how PNG could could evolve and in what ways, what sort of policies were the appropriate ones for a, a, a country which was soon to become independent, and so on. And in the meantime, of course, Gough Whitlam had gone up in 1970, and he came again in in 72, and and talked about independence. And then Whitlam was elected in at the end of 72. So there was a, it, the, the evolution really started to pick up momentum and and take off I suppose
0: going into the the specific roles that you, that you were undertaking at the time, how, how exactly were you, were you personally involved in the uh, in the process of obtaining independence for,
1: for Papua New Guinea? One experience I'd had in that first four years, which was uh, a deeply colonial experience, was to be secretary of a committee that had been appointed to uh, inquire into rural wages. And and uh, uh, the Committee of Inquiry had three planters and three Papua New Guinean growers of copper and, and cocoa and coffee as well. And all six of us and, and the chair and I, the secretary, travelled round and it was a fascinating six months really going to look at the whole rural industry Uh, but uh, halfway through, the chair said, look, I don't want you to draft it, I'll I'll draft the report. And when he did the report, he recommended an increase in wages of 50 cents a month. And I was absolutely appalled. And decisions like that made it clear that Papua New Guinea couldn't work in in the interests of Papua New Guineans until there was independence, and it, there were there were numbers other. There was a conflict over urban wages as well, and I I put in w- with with others a submission arguing that urban wages should be very sharply increased. But this was not approved of, and so it, there was a there was a a process of gradual radicalization going on. So and 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 each step along the way. Increased the momentum for later changes, and self-government came in uh, 1971, and Samari became chief was was elected and became chief minister, and he started to articulate a, a program of of uh, political goals, the eight aims. So the were the were the principal ones, and. Then everything was judged against those eight aims. One was very aware of being of being a foreigner, an expatriate, and and but at, at that stage, it was still important for people who were strongly supportive of the movement towards independence to be still involved in the process. And my principal involvement was when I uh, after I'd been working at the university. Up there, I was appointed as a lecturer in economics, and then I I, I got uh, leave to go and, and study economic development at Cambridge for for nine months, and did that, and came back. And when I, as soon as I came back, Samari's office asked me to prepare a proposal for a national a national uh, planning office. I did that, and then uh, it was set up, and I went into that as assistant one of the assistant directors, and. The director was appointed from Canada, and he wasn't interested in, in planning. He only wanted to renegotiate the Bougainville Copper Agreement, which was a very important task. Uh, and he said, "I could oversee the preparation of the of the plan." Well, that was a fantastic opportunity, and that was the the most uh, exciting task I could possibly have had. And, and that was a very collective activity uh, with with uh, Papua New Guineans and other Australians involved in it. And we mm-hmm. designed, we wrote it and uh, it came out as, we, I mean, it was, had to be checked with cabinet and, and so on, but it, it, it came out as strategies for nationhood, it was called. And, and, and what were some of the key
0: um, developments as a result of that national plan? Or what were the, the main aims of, of that? Well,
1: one, one was how did you link budgeting with that plan? And so what what we did was think think of five questions to ask cabinet and we ranked their replies one to five when uh, we listed every area of public expenditure and said, how important do you think this is?" and then ranked each reply five, five one to five and then uh, those that got the highest, rank uh, were the ones that got the biggest increase in the budget so that i mean that was a way of trying to make concrete the sort of proposals that were that were in the plan and what happened was that that education and agriculture came top and health came second and and defence came at the bottom and it, i i was very happy with the outcomes but 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 that was the way it was done. It was it, they were the decisions of the Papua New Guinean cabinet ministers.
0: I noticed that um, in your writings on on your time in PNG, you you visited again, I think, in twenty thirteen. Yes. Um, and mentioned um, a handful of areas in which there was still work to be done. Are you able maybe to briefly outline those to us? What still needs to be done at, at, oh. at this point in time? Or if you were if you were, I suppose, starting. From from this point now, where your focus would be, uh,
1: I, I, I hesitate to reply because those decisions can only adequately be made by Papua New Guineans. But but it's clear that there is inadequate attention to law and order, and that goes back to an appalling decision that Australia made in September, 1975. Uh, there was a there were. The, the Australian budget was in trouble, and all sorts of areas that Australia had supported Papua New Guinea were cut. And one of the cuts was to close the police training college. I mean, with hindsight, it was the most stupid thing Australia could ever have done, and they did it. And uh, later on, there were there were some there was some renewal of of training, but it's been inadequately trained ever since because it wasn't built on a process of, of uh, expecting uh, uh, good training. And that, that's, that's one bad mistake. Another bad mistake was not to establish uh, the local courts. Uh, in, in the 50s, not long before I was there, there were two or three anthropologists who said, "Look, uh, it's very there. There are internal disciplines within the in the groups up up there. What introduced institution could could reinforce the work of those groups in maintaining some kind of group discipline, group group collaboration, group freedom from breakdown." And and there was a strong recommendation from. Three of the best anthropologists that Australia's ever produced, to, that there should be a local court system, that would be run entirely by by the by uh, leaders of, of of the groups, and and w- w- with the capacity to ensure that when there was a breakdown of of law and order that it was addressed by local groups, but it didn't happen, and and then by the time of independence, when there were large numbers of people flooding into, into Moresby and Lay and so on, uh, they came in without any uh, sense of strong local solidarity. So the rascals the, started to just roam. And anyway, in tr- trying to find ways in which the 800 language groups uh, could have uh, internal disciplines of their own seems to be an absolutely vital change. And to some extent, that's not one that the central government can, can achieve, but it could do still more to build up local local discipline. Of course, there's need, always need for, for more employment, need for opportunities for earning an income. Uh, of course, there's a massive need for infrastructure. Uh, the education system and, the, uh, and particularly the health system are broken down. They need great attention. Uh, Papua New Guinea needs, needs more aid, but it needs ways of ensuring that the aid is used for what it's given for, and not doesn't go into the pockets of the of the prime minister and, and his henchmen um, that may sound very very too critical but there's quite a lot of evidence that that uh, that that's what happens.
0: How would you suggest then that your time in PNG shaped the rest of your career what was it in particular that made it such a formative experience to yourself?
1: or in quite a number of ways but one central way, was that I learnt the importance of politics. My, my family uh, had no politics in it at all. My father was a doctor, my mother was a primary school teacher. Uh, they had no party links. And uh, I, I learnt about the centrality of good political policy-making in the delivery of human services and in the development of, a, of community solidarity. In Papua New Guinea, I couldn't, I, it was inappropriate for a foreigner to be closely involved in, in the political party. I, it, it wasn't a fair thing to try and get involved. But I I tried to join the Labour Party while I was there. The, the Victorian Labour Party, where I came from, had no capacity to accept members from overseas. Anyway, I became a, a loyal Labour uh, supporter and uh, it, it was helped by meeting Goff and people he brought up with him and when it, when it, when it became time to to leave uh, as it did when my oldest daughter was 10 and I the, the bait was going round and round and I having, th- having been there for 13 years it seemed to me it was time to move on so I applied when Goff went into opposition after he lost government I uh, applied for a job on his staff and uh, with the encouragement of a Labour member that I'd met, uh, made the application and to my astonishment was appointed. And, but I'd been led to that position by seeing the centrality of the growth of political activity in PNG and, and feeling a bit frustrated I couldn't take part in it, and, but I, I could back in Australia. So that was that was one central thing i learned also a lot about public service about uh, about uh, the way government works in the in the fullest sense and and, and i'd also become a better economist and a more experienced policymaker myself and of course the next step was then seeking election to the to the house
0: of representatives as Yes, well, um, which seems like quite a shift um, what,
1: what was it really that encouraged you to well, do? I, well, when I, when I applied to work on the staff, it actually didn't occur to me that I'd ever become a member myself. Uh, I, I went into, uh, worked on the staff because I, was, I had become very interested in the political process of policy development. But once I got there and found that ideas that I'd thought of in relation to PNG sometimes were of relevance to, to Australia, the idea of, of an incomes policy which became the accord, the importance of planning to think ahead and try and prepare for what may happen, the, the importance of trying to build up community solidarity and so on and so on, all sorts of things, and foreign policy questions too. I, I, I gradually started to think, well, why not? I joined the party properly when I got to, to Canberra. And, uh, and so after about three or four years, uh, I thought I'd try and prepare myself for having a go. And the first thing I did was nominate for uh, the second position on Labour's Senate ticket, which was an absolutely unwinnable position, but it, it, it was an ideal way of learning how to be a campaigner uh, so I, I did that in, um, in 1969, 1970, I think the election was, early 70. And th- that taught me a lot about campaigning, but it also meant that people around the party started to know who I was. And and in those days, I'm proud to say, the Labor Party had a proper pre-selection process. I mean, every member person had been a member of the the party for a year could have a vote in the pre-selection, and there were uh, three hundred and fifty people who in in, uh, in the seat of Fraser, the northern half of Canberra, uh, and I had to go and try and see all of those and persuade them that I was the best of of four candidates, and <coughs> that was that is the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life.
0: <laughs> Would you say that? Um, like your t- time in, in PNG, that your time in the House of Reps was um, provided some sort of inspiration as to what your next step would be? Because obviously uh, you, you then became quite involved within the UN and, and, and other organisations as well.
1: Would you say that that was...? Oh, yes, it, very much so. I mean, I'd always been interested in foreign affairs. But, and, but when I went into the Australian Parliament, uh, my principal interest was economic policy. But um, when Hawke was elected leader, he appointed Keating as, as Shadow Treasurer and Keating needed help and, so, and I'd got to know him pretty well and so he asked me to work for him, which I did. But as soon as he became Treasurer, he decided to do whatever John Stone, the head of Treasury, told him to do. And he, he told me that's what he was going to do And he said, you can be my economic advisor, but the economic strength is over there, he said, in the Treasury Department. You you can't compete with them, so I'll have to do what they say. Uh, Well, I stayed around for a few months, but there was not much point. I mean, he wasn't interested in anything that I had to say. And Hawke was, and so Keating didn't get his own way entirely in the first few few months and and uh, the first few months weren't a waste of time at all because uh, I was quite close to Bob and and when we'd won government and and the, the the second night after we won government I spent the whole evening alone with Bob planning the economic summit and and the economic summit was held and I was centrally involved in the planning of that and after that had picked, they picked up various ideas that I was running with, so it wasn't it wasn't a, a waste of time. But 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 Paul really wasn't interested in in the same things as Bob had. Uh, so I left him. I I'd resigned after about four months and went back to working heading Ralph Willis's office. Then the 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 member in the seat I lived announced he was going to retire. I decided to have a go. Uh, The pre-selection was for three months. It was very, very, very hard work, but I did just win it in the end. And uh, so then went in, and uh, at the first caucus economic committee meeting after the election, when I went in full full of hope and plans and so on, Keating came in and he spent his first 10 or 15 minutes brutally condemning me. Uh, you are you're you're a post Keynesian. Uh, you're only concerned about equity. You're not concerned about efficiency. Uh, I, and warning everyone else in the committee to have nothing else to do with nothing to do with me. But it meant that my influence as a back, uh, bencher was always constrained by Keating's hostility. And I could I got as far as. Chairing some parliamentary committees and chairing some caucus committees, but I could never get onto the front bench because because Paul and his and the right wing were totally against me. So after eight or nine years of this, I did be, start to think, well, what else can I do? I mean, it's you know, there's only a certain amount you can do by always being on the back bench, and uh, Brian Howe appointed me to. To chair a national committee preparing for the World Summit for Social Development, which was run by the UN, and and we did very rigorous and and comprehensive preparation for it. I attended all the the preparatory m- meetings, and by the end, I really thought, look, I'd like to go and work at the UN, and so I uh, applied for a job in charge of the. Department for the the Division. It was called the Division for Social Policy and Development. And after a long wait, while Boutras Boutras Ghali was trying to get himself re-elected as, as Secretary General unsuccessfully, he held up all, all appointments while that was going on. Uh, but in the end, I was appointed. And so on the 1st of January uh, 1997, I started work. Uh, in the department of economic and social affairs in New York and that was the same day as Kofi Annan started as as secretary general and uh, it would hardly be possible to work for a, a more a finer or more admirable uh, leader than kofi Annan i thought and could you maybe briefly
0: tell us about the uh, the 24th special, special session. session yeah the uh General
1: Assembly. Sure, well that was the biggest job for which I had responsibility. Uh, the, the the Social Summit in 1995 had decided as one of its many decisions, it was a very productive meeting, uh, that there should be in fi- five years time a review of progress. So the decision was taken in about 1998 to have a special session of the General Assembly to do that review and my division was given the task of planning it. There was a, a what's called a bureau, an executive, of twelve countries that oversaw the preparation. And uh, as as director of the division, I had responsibility for organizing preparation of a draft uh, outcome document. And we did that by having preparatory meetings in in various places, and then then trying those out on the bureau, and then on the basis of the Bureau's revisions. They went to a preparatory uh, meeting. There were, there were four preparatory meetings, in fact, so that by the time we got to Copenhagen, sorry, not Copenhagen, in, to Geneva in June 2000, uh, most of the outcome document was already agreed, but there was still a whole series of things that had to be settled. And those were what was debated in Geneva. And we finally got uh, the Geneva Agreement, which had about 40 additional proposals in it. Kofi had wanted it to be an an innovative and a decisive meeting. And uh, one of the, for example, the the decision that I'm most proud of was the, the decision that that there would be a global target for reduction of serious poverty, of halving the level of serious poverty by 2015. Now it may sound like quite a, a modest target, but 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 halving poverty from two million, two billion to one billion in 15 years is a huge target. I certainly wouldn't call that a modest target. <laughs> oh well, uh, uh, I didn't either. Uh, but it was it was agreed. It was agreed without too much debate because no one country was responsible for it and they could all see it was a good idea, that it might well contribute to provision of more aid, tax, tariff concessions, improved trading opportunities, uh, more investment, etc., etc., all sorts of good things would help make it possible. And in fact... By 2013, it had been achieved because of the enormous growth of China. But It had fallen from, I think, around 600 million to 200 million, something like that, a very big change. In some other countries, there was improvement too. Some in India, not nearly as much. Some in some Latin American countries, not much in Africa. Some improvements in, in Europe and North America as well, actually. But anyway, it, as measured... It, that that target, which became the first of the eight uh, millennial development goals, uh, had, was achieved. Uh, others of the goals, some of them came from the, from the special session on social development, others came from other sources. But it, that idea of setting global targets, which were adopted by assemblies of the whole world, was a new one. And... So that, that was overseen and owes, owes its power, really, to Kofi's vision. And it was, it was a very important change. Now it's taken for granted, but in a sense, because uh, after the 15 years was up, uh, there was a three- or four-year process of getting a new batch of, of goals, the sustainable development goals, for the next 15 years. And uh, so it was, the whole uh, a nature of that process had become accepted but it was a real breakthrough to, to, for that approach to be adopted Absolutely
0: It really is a shame that we must start thinking now about uh, bringing our podcast okay. to an end but uh, I wonder if I might be able to ask you one final question before we do go um, and that would essentially just be what advice you may have for somebody who is at the beginning of their career thinking about getting into, into, into international relations now what advice you might have on how they should be thinking about their own career trajectories, or maybe even how you were doing it as you were moving through?
1: Well, it's very important to be well educated. I mean, it's a, and you, you must get a postgraduate degree. Uh, I mean, an undergraduate degree isn't nearly enough. It doesn't mean you have to have a doctorate, uh, but you must have a master's degree at least. And it, now it makes more sense to go to attempt to get a doctorate because, and and then to start to publish the thing about publishing is that it's not just because it looks good on your cv it means that you're starting to think and if you want to be involved in international affairs you need to have ideas about what's causing what's going wrong to happen and what can be done about it and you need to have learnt to 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 read well and think analytically and to express that and publication helps you do that. Um, it also helps greatly, of course, to have experience on the ground and working with an NGO or or or, or working as an intern at the UN or in, in missions of the various countries. Or or but it can help too to to have worked in a private company. Uh, so, and to speak a language is very good if, in addition to your own. Is, is a very good it's not absolutely compulsory but it's very helpful that's enough ideas <laughs> i think so
0: john langmore thank you very much for your time today it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast
1: thanks cameron
0: thank you for listening to this week's episode of the dyson house podcast join us next week for episode two and don't forget to subscribe via itunes or soundcloud so you never miss an episode